Hello and welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. This is our third week in a series entitled The Enemy. And the title to the message this morning is The Enemy and His Devices. And we're going to take a look at some things that the devil uses to trap and ensnare his victims. Please enjoy. Some of you may have noticed we got our dog back. And uh, it's quite a story. She was tangled up in the woods for a whole week. And uh, Miss Jessica Travis, she uh, had been through her property that she doesn't even live on that property anymore, but her neighbors said that she heard some barking over there. And uh, she went through her property two and three times on her four-wheeler and never heard anything. And then the last time she looked, she didn't hear anything. And she got in her vehicle to leave her property, and she got stuck in the mud. She got stuck in the mud, and then while she's, now, uh, while she's waiting on someone to get her out of the mud, she heard the dog bark. She kind of got stuck in the mud. The dog still be tied up in the woods. And so she gets out and goes, and she's 20 weeks along, and goes and crosses over that creek and finds, finds Fox, and she's tangled up around three trees and... Uh, and it was the Lord's intervention. And so she definitely, when I, I thought, thought the dog was gone. So we are, we are very thankful that the Lord, uh, the Lord blessed us in that way. And I thank Miss Travis online. And uh, we're just so thankful to have our dog back. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter number 2. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. And uh, we're going to continue this morning in our, uh, our series on the enemy. So this is a series on the enemy. We're going to continue in this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. Got to get the Word of God. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. I'll give you just another second to get there. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. If you have your places in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to invite you to stand one last time in respect and reverence of the Word of God. We'll read one verse. We'll read verse number 11. The Bible says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Let's read that one more time. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. The title of the message this morning is The Enemy's Devices. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity that we have to come and come into your house. And Lord, I pray that you'd clear our minds and hearts and thoughts this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us and help us to concentrate on the Word of God and soak in the Word of God and May the word of God change our lives this morning. For as this in Jesus Christ's precious name I pray, amen. You may be seated. I was 16 years old and I had been hunting since I was 12 and I had never killed a deer. I was desperate to kill my first deer. So I went to my dad. I was like, dad, what, what? I mean, my dad's not a hunter, but I've tried everything else. What do I need to do, dad? And so he said, well, here, here's what you need to do. You need to go down to the local fruit stand and you need to get some cull apples. 
and you need to go get some coal apples and you need to pick a spot and you need to get those coal apples and you need to throw them against the bark of the tree and rub some of the apples on the tree and throw, throw the apples down and I guarantee you'll get some deer. I said, okay, well, where should I do this at? He said, you know, do it at the camp. Go down to the, to the Boca Chitta camp we got down by the river. Do it down there. There's a spot right by the road where you can, where you can, uh, where I've seen deer there before. So that's what I did. I went to the fruit stand and I got me some cold apples and I went down to the Bugachita River and I got the apples and I busted them against a tree and I rubbed some apples on the, on the bark of the tree and I put some apples down, down on the, down around the tree base. It was right near the road. And, and so, uh, I went home and man, all week I was looking forward to going hunting that weekend. And so I was going to go hunting Saturday morning, but Friday night I thought I'd go out there and check on it. So it's, it's Friday evening. It's not quite dark. It's, it's getting it's getting dark. And I'm in my dad's dually, and I'm, I'm going down the, this windy road, going to the camp. And as soon as I turn the corner, bam, run right into a deer. So I get out, and I, I look at the deer, and my dad's truck, it's okay. It's a dually. It didn't hurt the truck. And it wasn't the biggest deer in the world, but it's just a little deer. So here's what I did. I took the deer and I picked the deer up and I put it in the back of the truck. I drove home. I went into my bedroom and I put on my camouflage. I grabbed my gun. I went out to the truck and I dropped the tailgate and I dragged the deer out on the road. I told my dad, Dad, get your camera. And I took a picture and, you know, it was, I was my first deer I killed. Of course, I'm going to take a picture of my camo. Now, if somebody asks me about it, I got to tell them the truth. But, uh, but that was my first official killing of a deer was with my dad's truck. But what led to that deer's demise is guess what he was doing? He was there eating those apples. And that's why he met his end. There was a bait, there was bait set on a trap and the trap snapped and the deer is no more. I can remember going to my papa's house and me and my cousin Cody would go to papa's house and, and me and Cody would be on the, on the floor watching Raw High with Papa. And uh, we watched Gil Favor and Rowdy Yates and we loved that. We loved watching it with them. And, and so we'd be there watching uh, Raw, uh, Raw High with Papa and, and uh, my papa's house had a mouse problem. So he had mouse traps absolutely everywhere. They were under the chairs. They were under the couch. They were under the TV stand. They were behind the refrigerator. They were under the refrigerator. They were in the cabinets. They were under the dishwasher. There were mouse traps everywhere. And he used cheese and he used peanut butter to get them little mices. And so what he would do, and, and that's on purpose. And so... Um, what he would do is we'd be sitting there watching Raw High, and then all of a sudden we'd hear a snap. And we didn't hear the crackle or the pop. And what we would do then, and then it was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was search time. Now it was time for me and Cody. He's, he's like, all right, boys, go get him. And so me and Cody would get up, and we would search every location and we'd search every place there was a mousetrap trying to find the one that went off, secretly hoping that the other person would find it first because nobody wants to see that, especially when we're 11, 12 years old. Don't want to mess with no, no mouse on a trap. 
And uh, so secretly hoping that the other person would find it. And, and eventually we'd find the mouse and reset the trap. But, you know, what would happen is that that mouse would smell that cheese. And, and that mouse would go over to that cheese and he'd smell the cheese and he'd lick the cheese and he nibbled at the cheese, and then all of a sudden he'd take a big old bite out of the cheese and snap. Down it goes. And the mouse is no more. But you know what? The cheese and the trigger, they have a counterpart in the Bible. Did you know that concept of the cheese, the bait, and the trigger for the trap? There's a counterpart for that in the Bible. And it's the Greek word scandalon. And the definition of scandalon is a bait on which you set a trigger for a trap. And that is the definition of this word scandalon. Now, when the word is translated in the King James Bible, it usually shows up as offense, offend, or stumbling block. And when you see these words in the King James Bible, a lot of times it's the Greek word scandalon, which means bait that's placed on a trigger for a trap. So the, so the, the devices that we have an enemy out there, we have an enemy called Satan. We have an enemy called the devil. He is our enemy. He wants to destroy us. And what the devil has done is throughout your life, Throughout my life, he has littered some traps. On these traps that he set throughout your life, he has put bait on a trigger. And the bait on which he sets this, uh, sets this trigger is offenses in the Bible. So when you see, uh, now these aren't the only devices that the devil has, but these are a lot of the, de these are some of the devices that the devil uses. And in the Bible, they're called offenses and the the offense you see the devil's smart the devil's crafty okay the devil uh what he's done is is, is he's is he's set these traps to entrap us and to ensnare us so we can become his victims and the bible warns us to be smart to not be ignorant of his devices the verse says, lest Satan should get the advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And, and the Bible identifies a number of offenses in the Bible that the enemy uses to ensnare his victims. Now, for the unsaved man, these traps are there to send him to hell. For the unsaved person, these traps are set to drag an unsaved lost person into the depths of hell. That's what these traps are laid for. But these traps aren't just laid for the unsaved. These traps are laid for the Christian too. These traps are laid for me and for you, for those of us who are saved. And, and for the Christian, these traps are designed to destroy a home, to destroy a life, to destroy a marriage, to destroy a church. These traps are there to destroy its victims, whether saved or lost, the traps are there for both. And, and the thing of off, this thing of offenses in the Bible is serious business. When you see the word offense in the Bible, it is a serious, serious business. Matthew 18, 17 says, Woe unto the world because of offenses. 
for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Offenses are some, it's serious business in the Bible. So what I have this morning, I have three offenses that the Bible identifies. And these are devices that the devil uses to entrap me and you. And then I have a way of dealing with each of these offenses. Okay, so let's start right into this. Number one this morning, first offense we're going to deal with is the offense of worldly thinking. The offense of worldly thinking. Now, Peter in the Bible, Peter was a great guy. Peter was a dynamic preacher. He was a powerful preacher. Peter was a great guy. But let me tell you something, Peter had a disease. If you, have you ever heard of this disease called hand, foot, and mouth disease? I've had it as an adult. And they say, oh, when you have it as an adult, it's not that bad. Hmm, it was bad. And I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy to have hand, foot, and mouth disease. But, you know, uh, Peter didn't have hand, foot, and mouth disease. Peter had take his hand, grab his foot, and put it in his mouth disease. Okay? That's the, that, that's the disease that Peter had. Because every time Peter, just about every time Peter opened his mouth, he stuck his, he stuck his big old foot in his mouth every time he just about opened his mouth. I mean, from the, from, the, from the silly idea of building tabernacles at the Mount of Transfiguration to his profanity-laced denial of the Son of God, Peter, just about every time you turned around, Peter was sticking his foot right in his mouth. And you know, any time Jesus asked for an opinion, nine times out of 10, it was gonna be Peter that piped up and gave his opinion Peter was in going to get his two cents in, but a lot of times when Peter put his two cents in, he didn't have enough change. So Peter was always piping up and putting his, putting his two cents in, and he was always sticking his foot in his mouth. And, and we see here in Matthew 16, 13, we see Peter's probably his, his greatest moment. In Matthew 16, we see probably Peter's finest hour. Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks the question. Jesus asks the disciples, whom do men say that I am? Now, could you hear the disciples answer this morning? Well, Lord, we're reading the, the latest Gallup poll. And uh, just to tell you, 31% of respondents say you are John the Baptist. 27% claim you are Elijah. 22% said you are Jeremiah. 15% said you're another prophet, and 5% were undecided. 5% are always undecided in these polls, okay? 5% are always undecided. But then Jesus asked the question of the ages. He turns to them and says, but whom do ye say that I am? Now, Peter a lot of times stuck his foot in his mouth. But, you know, this time, Peter gets it pretty right. Peter hits the nail right on the head. Human words could not put it better than Peter put it. In 10 words, Peter hit a grand slam. Here's what Peter said. Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Wow. Way to go, Peter. Human words could not have said it 
any better. That was absolutely the perfect response, Peter. You did such a great job. It looks like Peter finally got one right. But you know, old Peter, Peter can't leave well enough alone. Peter can't hit a grand slam and walk away. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not Peter's style. Peter's got to pick at it. Peter's got to poke at it. Peter's got to prod at it. And we already, in, in, in four verses later, four verses, we see Peter make a complete mess out of things. He had just hit a grand slam, and four verses later, he found a way to mess things up. You see, Jesus began prophesying of his suffering. Jesus began prophesying of his death. This alarmed Peter so much. Here's what he did. The Bible says he grabbed Jesus by the arm, yanked Jesus to the side, and started rebuking Jesus right to his face. Started rebuking Jesus right there in front of everybody. Man, uh, he, he, he said, he, Peter said to Jesus, this shall not be unto thee. Now, I want you to listen to, Peter, to Jesus' response to Peter. This is what he said. In Matthew 16, 23, after Peter rebuked Jesus for saying that, this is what Jesus said to Peter. He said, uh, but he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. He's saying this to Peter. Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me. Despite Peter's honorable intentions and despite his sincere intentions, Peter was being used by Satan at that moment as an offense to Christ. Peter was being used as a stumbling block on the road to Calvary. He was being used of Satan. Uh, uh, why though? Why was Peter an offense to Christ in that moment. Why was he an offense to Christ? Let's finish the verse. But, be, but he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. Here it is. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now the word savorest here refers to the mindset that Peter had. It refers to the line of thinking and the human logic that was dominating Peter's mind. You see, Peter was using human reasoning and he was using human logic instead of following the things of God. Now, human reasoning would say that Peter was right. If Peter walked in here today and said, hey, somebody's going to try and kill Jesus. I need a man to stand up and help me defend him. What man in here would not stand up ready to fight to defend the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? We would stand up and fight to protect Jesus if somebody was coming after him. And of course, that's what Peter was thinking. Man, I'll protect you, Jesus. I'm not going to let anybody kill you. I'll give my life to stand in front of you and protect you. But that was Peter's human thinking. So that was Peter's problem. The Peter's problem, it was, see, human thinking and godly thinking is vastly different. It's vastly different. Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. See, human thinking contradicts godly thinking. Um, Anytime a man chooses human thinking over godly thinking, he instantly becomes an offense. Let me tell you this. Human thinking sends people to hell. Human thinking sends people to hell. 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. Can you see Paul today? Can you see Paul in Corinth? the Las Vegas of his day. And Paul is in Corinth and he's talking to these Jews and these Jews are pristine and they're all prim and proper and they've got all their shirts on right and they've got their robes. And, and man, these, these Jews, they grew up in halls of worship and they had uh, illustrious, honorable teachings and they had great artwork on the wall and everything was was just in its perfect spot and there wasn't a, a speck of dust anywhere. And man, they all their lives they had grown up and they had sang the reverential music of the of the temple and they knew all the words and and uh, and everything was just all in its place and everything was was just as it should be. And they had spent their lives studying the law of God, trying to show God their goodness. And then Paul steps up and says you need blood from a cross to go to heaven. You need blood from a cross to go to heaven. And man, you know what they said? I said, what? What are you saying? What is this slaughterhouse religion you got going on? Man, this slaughterhouse religion you've got, it's too gory. It's too bloody. It's too distasteful for us. Paul, God will accept me just as I am. I don't need your slaughterhouse religion. You know what? Because they said that because their human thinking didn't line up with godly thinking. Let me to tell you today that hell is full of sinners who stumbled in because they allowed human thinking to supersede godly thinking. Human thinking has not only sent untold numbers of people to hell. But human thinking has destroyed the lives of an untold number of saints. See, Abraham made a series of horrible decisions. And before those decisions, he said three words, and you can find it in Genesis 20, 11. Here are the three words he said before he made some horrible, horrible decisions. The three words Abraham said was, because I thought. And then he made some horrible decisions. Why? Because he let human thinking supersede godly thinking. Man, Moses, Moses never thought in a million years uh, that God would keep him out of the promised land. He thought that, and Moses got to the point where he thought he could pick and choose which commandments he could obey because he never thought that God would keep him out of the promised land. Moses' thinking was flawed. And Moses never made it to the promised land. Let's talk about a man named Uzzah. Uzzah was, 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 was standing beside the ark of God and Uzzah was looking up the ark of God and the ark of God started to shake and it started to fall over. And Uzzah knew in his mind that commandment was man was not supposed to touch the ark. But he reasoned with himself. 
very quickly. You know how you can think fast in an instant? He reasoned with himself and he said, surely God would not want the ark of God, the ark of the covenant to fall on the ground and bust to pieces. Surely God would in this moment allow me to put my hand up and touch the Ark of the Covenant and steady it. And surely in this moment it would be okay. Surely God knows what I'm thinking and he thinks like me and, and I'm sure God would be okay with it. And Uzzah put his hand up and put his hand on the Ark of God to steady it from falling over and died. Why? Because his human thinking superseded Godly thinking. Let's talk about a king named Uzziah. Uzziah became king when he was 16 years old. And the Bible says that he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Uzziah went out there and he started tearing down idols and he started building up. You got to worship the true God and he get rid of all these idols. And the Bible says that he did right, which was, which was in the eyes of God. And he did everything right. So one day when it was time to place a sacrifice in the temple, Uzziah thought, well, you know what? I've done a lot of good. I'll do it. I'll go in there. And the prophet said, well, hold on a second. The king isn't supposed to make the offering. The king isn't supposed to place a sacrifice. And Uzziah thought, man, you know, I've done so much good and I've done so much good for God. Death, the Lord's going to be okay with it. I'm telling you, the Lord's going to be okay with it. Well, then Uzziah placed the offering. He made the sacrifice and he was struck with leprosy and died of it. Why? Because his human thinking superseded godly thinking. So how do we do this? How do we fight this godly thinking? Turn to 2 Corinthians 10 for me. 2 Corinthians 10. How do we combat this human thinking? Second Corinthians 10, and we're going to read verse number 5. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, Casting down imaginations... And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Let's read it one more time. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I want you to see two verbs in this verse. The first one I want you to see is first there must be a casting down. There must be a casting down. In other places in the Bible, we see casting down as it refers to the demolition of a building or the destruction of an army. You see, when my ideas contradict the eyes of the ideas of God, then my ideas must be obliterated. My ideas must be annihilated. My ideas must be gotten rid of. When I am convinced I know more than God, I have to immediately get out of that line of thinking. Let me give you an example. The Bible says that I can live that I should give 10% of my income to God. I will be blessed because of this. So this means that I can live better off 90% than I can off 100%. And human thinking says, there's no way. 
There's no way that's, that's true. The math does not add up. But the Bible says that I can live better off 90% than I can off 100%. Therefore, I must throw out my line of thinking and follow God. And follow God's thinking. That's just an example. So first we see there's got to be a casting down. And second, I want you to see in this verse, there has to be a bringing into captivity. You know what that means? That means now it's time to take some prisoners. Now I've got to take some prisoners and put some prisoners behind bars. And the prisoners, the thoughts of pride, anger, revenge, depression, envy, all those thoughts like that, I have to lock them up as prisoners. I have to put them down. I have to put them behind I have to put them behind bars. And how do I do this? I have to bow my knee and surrender in obedience to Christ. Obedience. That same, that same principle we teach our kids. Obedience, the same principle we're teaching back there, the same principle we teach our children in vacation Bible school. Obey and mama or mommy, obey and honor mommy and daddy. Well, mommy and daddy, we need to obey and honor Christ. We need to obey the Lord. Why? Because there's no other way than to trust and obey. That is how we throw out our line of worldly thinking. Number two this morning. Go ahead and turn to Romans 16. We're going to turn to a couple different, forgot to tell you that, we're going to turn to a couple different scriptures today. Go ahead and turn to Romans 16 and hold your place there. Number two this morning, the second offense we're going to deal with is the offense of divisive church members. The offense of divisive church members. Let me tell you today, there are a lot of churches out there who have been hurt by immorality. There are a lot of churches, we, we hear preachers that are, we hear about preachers today that are just modern day Balaams. And they have a for sale sign wrapped around their neck and they'll preach to whoever pays them the most. And we hear of churches that once stood for the word of God and we hear of churches that say that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. And, and then we have the young whippersnapper Preachers that come in these churches that don't believe like that. And, and, but you know what? There, there's another danger to churches out there. There's another danger. This danger is so destructive that God spends an alarming amount of time in the New Testament dealing with it. I'm going to show you how much time God spends in the New Testament dealing with this one particular danger to our church, to any church. Let's, we find it here in Romans 16, 17, and 18. The Bible says, Romans 16, 17, and 18, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them what's caused divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. In other words, watch out for loudmouth church members. Watch out for divisive, loudmouth church members. Hey, you know what? Romans isn't the only letter to include something like this. It's all throughout the New Testament. 
Acts 6, we see the Grecians and the Hebrews arguing about which widows get the bigger fruit basket at Thanksgiving. 1 Corinthians 1.10 pleads that there be no divisions among you. 2 Corinthians, Paul, uh, Paul deals with divisive people questioning his motives. Galatians, divisions come from divisive Jews joining Peter and not eating with the Gentiles. Ephesians, we're told to keep the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Philippians, we have the dynamic duo of Judas uh, and, and Sintesh. Uh, Colossians 3.13 tells us that there were quarrels in the church. Thessalonica heard it twice. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 says, And be at peace among yourselves. 2 Thessalonians 3.11, We hear there are some that walk disorderly, busybodies. There are 242 verses in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus combined. 49 of those verses deal with divisive church members. That's over 20% of these three books together deal with divisive church members. Uh, Philippi, and Philemon deals with a wealthy man's willingness to forgive a slave. Hebrew Christians had to be reminded, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. James had to say things like there are wars and fightings among you and speak not evil one to another. First Peter tells us, has to remind us to be of one mind, having compassion on one another. Love as brethren, be pitiful and courteous. Second Peter says that there will be false teachers among you. First John had to tell the local church that whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. He had to tell that to a local church. Second John warns about deceivers. Third John tells of probably the most destructive church member in the New Testament. It's a man named Diotrephes. And Diotrephes was so bad that John had to call him out by name and tell everybody what kind of person he was. And in Third John it says, and this is Diotrephes' problem, he says, he loveth to have the preeminence among them. He was the type of person that always had to be first. He always had to be recognized. He, everybody had to know all of his accomplishments. Jude warns of murmurers and complainers walking in their own lusts. And even in Revelation, a local, the local church of Thyatira was warned, warned of a Jezebel in its midst teaching its members to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed from idols. From Acts to Revelation, all 23 of these books deal with some sort of division in the church. They all deal with it, from false teachers to gossipers to people who were sinning openly to people who were sinning secretly. But you know what they all had in common? They all wanted the preeminence. They all wanted to be first. They all wanted to be on top. They all wanted to be recognized. Watch out for offenders in the church. Number three this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 5, please. This is the third and final offense this morning that we're going to deal with. Matthew chapter number 5. Number three this morning, what we have is the offense of moral sins. The offense of moral sins. The Sermon on the Mount was probably one of the greatest sermons ever preached on this planet. It definitely was the greatest sermon ever recorded in God's word. And the preacher himself preached it 
the preacher of Jesus Christ. It's one of the greatest sermons ever preached. From the model prayer to the golden rule to the man which built his house upon a rock, this sermon is also a slandering rebuke on counterfeit religion. This is a great sermon. When he was finished with the Sermon on the Mount, he said uh, people were astonished by what he said. They knew that they had had somebody preach to them as one having authority. He never backed down and he never compromised his message. But you know what? If you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, there was one thing you got. If you didn't get anything else, you got this one thing. And it was this. Jesus believes in hell. Jesus believes in hell. Jesus did not believe that hell was the grave. Jesus did not believe that hell was where men go to thirst after God. Jesus did not believe that hell was a place of annihilation. Jesus believed in a real, literal, burning hell. And you know, if the book of Matthew was the only place in the word of God that mentioned hell, it would be enough to, to terrify any rational person. But it isn't. But I want you to know that in the book of Matthew, the word hell is found nine times. Each time hell is found, it was spoke by the words of Jesus Christ. I'd like to read them for you very quickly. Matthew 5, whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Matthew 5, 29, not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Matthew 5, 30, not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Matthew 10, 28, fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew eleven twenty three, thou Capernaum shall be brought down to hell. Matthew 16, 18, the, ga the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 18, 9, rather than having two eyes, be cast in the hell fire. Matthew 23, 15, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Matthew 23, 33, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? And just for good measure, let me read for you Matthew 13, 42, and they, and shall... And shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I am here to tell you today, Jesus believed in hell. But you want to know why Jesus wept? You want to know why Jesus had compassion? That's why. Jesus looked on them and had compassion on them because Jesus knew there was a hell. Because hell is a real place. So here comes the offense. Here comes the offense right here. Look at verse number 27 in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read two verses really uh, in verse 27 and 28. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Okay? Uh, 
Jesus here is reminding everybody of the, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. But you know what Jesus liked to do? Jesus always liked to take things a step further. Jesus always liked to go that extra mile and take that extra step. And Jesus takes an extra step here. And Jesus says, hey, when you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You've already committed the adultery with her. You see, the sins of the mind prelude the sins of the flesh. You see, so uh, so we see here. Now, let's continue reading in verse 29 and 30. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Hell is such a horrible, horrible place that it would be better for you to cut off a body part and throw it in the trash than go to hell. That is how horrible health, uh, hell is. And the enemy, are the, our enemy, the devil, all day, every day uses, uses immoral, fleshly sins to drag people to hell. Multitudes of people have went to hell because they chose their lust and they chose their immorality over Jesus. They chose their sin over Calvary's forgiveness. And they chose sin over the Savior. It is their great offense, the one thing that is more important in their lives than forgiveness. You see, when a man trusts Christ, when a person trusts Christ, he is trusting Christ to wash their sins away. Okay? No person will ever go to heaven for quitting their sins. No. You're not going to go to you're not going to go uh, uh, you're not going to go to heaven just because you quit your sins, okay? But when you ask Jesus to save you, you're asking him to wash your sins away. So, a man who wants his sin more than he wants a savior is not ready to be saved. Um, so that's the choice. Do I want my sin or do I want my savior to wash away my sin? And a man who has chosen his sin over the savior has identified the offense. And that, that's, that's what the offense is. So uh, for a lost person, they have a choice. Do I want my sin or do I want Jesus to wash my sins away? Now, I want to tell you today that Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount not only to the lost. He was preaching to his disciples too. His disciples were in there and heard the same thing that he just said to the lost people. His disciples heard that as well. And while an offense can blind a lost man to the gospel, an offense can also turn a Christian into a Pharisee. I'm going to show you how. The Pharisees had many great traits to be admired. Uh, the Pharisees, they, they knew the Bible and could quote hundreds of verses. They dressed modestly. The Pharisees, they cared a great deal for their family. The Pharisees were generous givers. 
the Pharisees could trace their lineage all the way back to the prophet Ezra. That is nothing to shake a stick at. But the Pharisees were arch enemies of the Son of God. Why? Because one day they crossed the line. There's a line from, I want to impress God to I want to impress people. That was the line that they crossed. And I don't know when they crossed it, but one day they crossed from impressing God into in trying to pre- impress people and show people how holy they are and show people how great they are. And you know what? Um, you know what Jesus told the, told, the, told the Pharisees? He says, you are whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Which means on the outside, you're pristine and prim and proper and everything is in its place and everything looks right on the outside. But on the inside, there's nothing but death. You know what Jesus is pleading to his disciples here? He's saying, you know what? Your outward dress can be right and your moral standards can be right and and all your holy words. And none of that means anything if the inside is filthy. And that's what he says to us today. Man, everything, you can go to church and man, you can, you can pray and you can praise and you can preach and you can read the Bible and you can sing and you can volunteer and you can do everything you want on the outside. But if the inside is filthy, you're a Pharisee. You're a hypocrite. You see, we can turn into Pharisees because of these sins. Because if we sin, we're not going to go out and Tell everybody, like a lost, lost people don't care. We do. So what do we do? We hide it on the inside. See, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns his disciples about moral triggers that will spring a trap and destroy a life. So what's the answer to this, Christian? The simple answer is the only answer. A Christian must have the character to say no to sin. That's the simple answer, and it's the only answer. You don't have to turn there, but I'd like to read for you 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There has no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Christian, you can say no. You can walk away. Why? Because in every temptation, God has pre-put in it a way for us to escape. Every temptation. He has has built in every temptation an avenue for us to escape and an avenue for us to say no. And we must escape, and we must stay as far away from these offenses, as far away from the devices of the devil as humanly possible. There was a king, and this king was hiring three cart drivers to drive his royal buggy he was interviewing these three cart drivers. He had one royal buggy, and he wanted he called for the best cart drivers, buggy drivers in the kingdom. And these three men is what, what came. His palace was up on a, on the top of a hill and there was a cliff and a winding road that led to the palace. 
And the king looked at the first cart driver and he said, how close can you get to that edge without falling over? And the cart driver said to the king, man, I can get within a foot of that edge and not fall over. Well, the king was impressed. So the king went to the second cart driver and asked him, how far can you get, how close can you get to that edge and not fall over? And the second cart driver said, I can get within six inches of that edge and not fall over. Oh, once again, the king was thoroughly impressed with this cart driver. And so then he came to the third cart driver and he said, Sir, let me ask you the same question I asked them. How close can you get to the edge of that cliff without falling over? And the cart driver looked at the king and said, You will never find out. Because if I am your driver, I will keep you as far away from that cliff edge as I possibly can. Guess which cart driver the king chose? Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. 